The minute that you get labeled a conspiracy theorist, pretty much everything that you have to say ceases to be taken seriously. The red pill is just about kind of shaking up your perception of the way that things really And on the understanding that what you've been told your entire life is a consciously constructed lie. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. The idea of Project Bluebeam is that NASA, with the help of the United Nations, was attempting to implement a new age religion with the Antichrist at its head and start a new world order via technology simulating the second coming of Christ. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Hawkeye Media presents... Conspiracy Pill with PJ and Abby. And that's the thing about conspiracy theories is like it's sometimes they're not going to be true. And it's okay. There's literally nothing wrong with asking the questions and pulling on the threads and doing the research. It is what it is. Hello and welcome to season two, episode twenty-six of Conspiracy Pilled. The uh, intro ended for me later than it did for. Okay, for you. <laughs> I was That's like, why I was wondering how are we just sitting here? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna wait. No, so yeah, no, that was that was good. Um, yeah, how are how are you, PJ? I am doing doing good. Yeah, well, it's been a weird bit of research, so this is gonna be an interesting show. <laughs> I, the title didn't. Didn't convince me that it was. Didn't convince you it'd be weird enough. You know, it's it doesn't seem like it would be like that weird because I mean a lot of the Nazi conspiracy stuff is kind of been done. It's in the past, and I I feel like I tried to link a lot of interesting things here and kind of take it in a different route than just mm. what are the Foo Fighters? Are they this? Are they that? I don't know. And like that's kind of how a lot of these go. Uh, but we're gonna start like. We're going to start with German occultists. We're going to go into like the real castle Wolfenstein. There's UFOs. There's Nazis. There's pyramids. There's everything in this episode, which I is love, what I try to do. So I love when there's Nazis and pyramids in the same story. <laughs> Those are the best stories for sure. So how are you doing? I'm 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 doing. I'm I'm here. All right. Well, hey, that's all we could ask for. So welcome in chat. I'm uh, glad you guys are here. If you guys listen to this later, don't forget to come over to Rumble and check us out live on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we have a lot of fun and we do a part at the end of the show where we, you know, kind of leave behind all the audio listeners and, and stuff like that and just talk to the live audience for a while. So that's one of my favorite things. And if you're missing it, you can go to conspiracypilt.locals.com and you can get that part or you can just come watch us live. But I want to give a shout out to our two new local subscribers this week. We have Boykin Spaniel. I think I'm saying that right. Boykin Spaniel and Sub Deep Sea. And this show is about Nazis, so I can guarantee I'm going to mess up way more names than Boykin Spaniel tonight. But it's okay because they're Nazis. That's true. That's true. I'm going to mess up every terrible human being's name uh, and all of the language, and it's going to be interesting. So anyway, uh, let's get into it then, I guess. So last week you talked about the uh, Pleiadians. Yeah. And it kind of delves into Nazi stuff. We talked about Hitler a little bit and how his influence almost definitely came from uh, Helena Blavatsky and these ideas of the Pleiadians and all that stuff. There's more Pleiadian stuff in this one. Uh, it's kind of unavoidable. Good. So this is like a continuation of last week in a lot of ways. But let's start with a guy named Willie Lay. 
And this guy was a German rocket engineer who immigrated to the United States in 1937. So not Project Paperclip. Okay. The guy okay. that came on his own. Kind of like Einstein came over before. Yeah. So in 1947, he published an article called Pseudoscience in Naziland. And, in the ma- and it was in the magazine Astounding Science Fiction. And he wrote that the high popularity of irrational convictions in Germany at the time explained how Nazism could have fallen on such fertile ground. So basically, oh. Germany was a hotbed for spiritualism, occultism, weird, weird, weird cults and, and weird beliefs and stuff like that. And among the groups that he's talking about in this article, he mentions a group called the Vril. And you brought, you brought this up last yeah. week. And he said that the next group, quote, the next group was literally founded upon a novel. And that group, which I think called itself, <laughs> here's the first one of the night, War War Heistensgestaff. War Heistensgestaff. <laughs> one more time. I didn't catch that. War Heistensgestaff. War Heistensgestaff. Or the Society for Truth in English, which is what we're going to use. Okay, okay. So <laughs> the Society for Truth, which was more or less localized in Berlin, and it devoted its spare time to looking for Vril. And as you brought up in your show last week, Vril, uh, The Power of the Coming Race, a novel by Edward bulwer Lytton that was published in 1871 about a group of underground telepathic beings who fo- uh, who fled that uh, who fled. Well, I wrote this down weird. A group of underground telepathic beings who lived underground and fled there to escape a massive flood. And this group was called the Vrilia. And in this book, in the story, Vril is this magic substance that uh, it's like this red liquid that can basically do anything. It can heal you or it can do whatever. It's like a stand-in for it's just magic. Wait, red substance? Yeah, yeah. And that's going to be important later because we're going to be talking about... Sorry, what? That can heal you. You'll prevent aging and... Oh, no, 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 no. You're thinking of the wrong red substance. <laughs> this is not an adrenochrome episode. Okay. So, right, yeah, cool. yeah. Different, different red substance, but uh, that'll come up later. So just tuck that away. Mm, and uh, this book and its myth was believed by Madame Blavatsky. Not that it was yes. a true story, but that it was telling of a truth. So it was a fictionalized story telling about true things, yes. kind of like a parable of sorts. Right. And because of her beliefs and, and, kind of the promotion of this book, it became really popular amongst European mystics in the time before Hitler's rise. And here's the first thing that I found that is specifically for Abby tonight. I, I, I had to put this in the notes just for you. So in 1891, a decade after uh, the first book came out, the Vril, the power of the coming race, mm-hmm. a sequel named Vril, the staff, a romance was published <laughs> and it was written by an unknown author uh, who went by the pseudonym XYZ. So I just, I, it sounded like one of your um, yeah. Nephilim smut books that you like to read at the local Vril. Barnes and Noble. <laughs> Vril, the staff, a yes. romance. Vril, the staff, a romance. Not quite as good as uh, Gargoyle Daddy Dom romancing yeah. his stone, but it's up there. It was, it was a good attempt. I think, I, I think this is where it started. It's on Google Books. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> Please continue. All right. So, yeah, don't go uh, don't go by Vril the Staff or Romance, but if you do, I want to hear about it. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, anyway, brings us to this society that uh, that Willie Lay was talking about called the Vril Society, and little is confirmed and much is speculated about the Vril Society. And according to some, 
Vril was an early 20th century female circle of mediums who were involved in telepathic contact with extraterrestrials. And the objective of the Vril group, besides trying to find Vril in and of itself, was to acquire knowledge about the Vril energy through psychic means. And they kept their hair long because they believed it made like this antenna for ET communication. So there are all these pictures, when you look into Vril society, are of these women in Germany, these black and white photos of these German women with like hair down to their ankles in these like hippie dresses. It's like this weird hippie alien cult, like before you thought that weird hippie alien cults existed. Yeah. Which it's is interesting. I don't, I don't have time to go into this tonight, but that like the whole hippie movement in the 1960s America was literally a mirror of the hippie movement in Germany in the 1920s and tens. It's like exactly the same, which is yeah. very interesting. So like if you think about like the we're waiting for the age of Aquarius, like alien hippie cults of, of the 1960s, that is what the Vril society was in Germany, essentially. OK. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and some here's the thing. We're going to get into this a little bit more later, but some of the stuff is really hard to confirm. Uh, and find real stuff on. So take a lot of this with a grain of salt. I'll tell you in the show when I found, you know, I can corroborate the things I'm saying. Some of this is just, I don't know, theory, speculation. Maybe it comes from bad fiction. I don't know. But this, but most of what you find on the real society is kind of on fringy websites. That's all I'm saying. So Gosh, some go, as, yeah, right. It's, Wait, are you <laughs> saying that a secret, <laughs> secret hippie Nazi alien cult is difficult <clears throat> to find information on? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll just say this now. I was listening to a lot of podcasts and watching a lot of people cover all these different aspects that I'm going to be talking about tonight. And specifically when it came to Maria Orsic, who we're going to talk about in a minute in the Vril Society. I found all these videos where people were talking about, here's this information. I found the Vril Society and they would put it up on their page and it would literally be Wikipedia articles about Maria Orsic or the Vril Society or this person or that person. And it would be other articles and other books and things like that. And I tried to find any of the stuff that was shown on screen on any of these videos. And I could find none of it. Like it was wow. just, I could like, I could see the, the, the hyperlink yeah. and I could see like what, like they were watching and what they were reading and I couldn't find it for myself. So I could tell you what I listened to and heard on other people's shows and videos and the little but bit I've been able to find, swiped. but yeah, it's been really like that's what was so hard. I feel like I just finished writing my notes like 10 minutes before we started this because I was trying to confirm or like find validation to so much of the stuff that I heard. Wow. And some of it I just haven't found yet. So there's there's so much with like the the Nazi mysticism stuff that it is going to delve into other episodes. We could probably do a whole thing on the Vril Society and the Thule Society and stuff like that. But it's kind of the background of the story. So I'm keeping it a little bit brief, but. Mm. So, yeah, some go as far as to say that uh, the Vril Society was behind Hitler's rise to power. Uh, and they used their occult practices, their magic rit rituals, and their connection to the Aryan alien root race that gave them knowledge and secret technology. And this is kind of how they built up Hitler. That's a little probably not true. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing about World War II stuff is when you want to get into the secret stuff, there are plenty of declassified documents you can find. And there's all these, these cool things you can find, but a lot of it's mixed in with, uh, fan fiction. And sometimes you're reading something that sounds like fan fiction and then you find that it's real and it's very hard to distinguish. And especially with the internet being the way it is like, we have to do an episode on like the erasure of the internet at some point and how things are just going yeah. away that you used to be able to find. Yeah. Cause some of this stuff I looked into like four years ago 
and I found it way easier then. And now it took me all day to find like certain things. And just like I had to, I had to find books and then scan the books for like keywords to find it when there used to be articles about the books. So that was a little bit more work. Okay. But anyway, so some people also say about the Vril Society that it was like an inner circle of the Thule Society. So it was this female mystic inner circle of the Thule Society. Are you familiar with the Thule Society at all? It's come up a little bit, but I'm not super familiar. All right. So this was an occultist group that was founded in 1918, right at the end of World War One. Mm-hmm. And basically, if you read through the list of members, it's like a who's who of Nazi leadership. Like this is where the Nazis yeah. ideas developed pre like even pre Hitler. Right. So like this is where they start to develop this whole idea of the the primary Aryan root race and the primary fo- focus of the Thule Society was a claim concerning the origins of the Aryan race. And in 1917, people who wanted to join had to sign a special blood declaration of faith concerning their lineage. And here's a quote. It says the signer hereby swears to the best of his knowledge and belief that no Jewish or colored blood flows in either his or his wife's veins and then among their ancestors are no members of the colored races. So like this is just the entry into this deeply occult society of essentially Pleiadian worship. Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit of the Thule Society. The person that is going to be important in, in the stuff with the Vril Society is this woman named Maria Orsic. And she's this famous medium who became the head of the Vril Society. And again, Information on her is a little weird. I did find this though. I'll share this with you. <laughs> There's like a fan page on Tumblr <laughs> with like art and like posts of how beautiful she is and all this stuff. It's pretty uh, weird. That's weird. It's pretty weird. Yeah. There's a lot of um, Maria Orsic apologists, um, which I shouldn't be surprised at this point, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, so supposedly what she did is she channeled information from the Aryan aliens and got it in Sumerian. And that was later able to be translated. So it wasn't like she was making the, the point of that. I think is that she didn't make it up. It was written in a language. She didn't understand was later translated. And that is what helped the Vril start building something known as the Munich device, which is the first UFO prototype. Some sources say like 1922 or 1924 or 1919. But the idea is she channeled the Pleiadians and the Pleiadians gave her blueprints in Sumerian for a UFO, essentially. Amazing. Yeah. And like I said, information on her is a little bit hard to find. I'll read you some of the stuff that I found. So one here is from... Uh, I can't with with the names. I'm just going to, I'll just put it on screen and read, read this paragraph to you guys. So it says, uh, the medium of the Vril, thanks to the, or yeah, the mediums of the Vril, thanks to the message contacts of the alien people became aware of many details of the population of Aldebaran, which is the, the planet she was speaking to that these certain Aryans came from. Uh, and these were divided between the divine people of light, the Aryan aliens, as they called themselves, tall, blue-eyed blondes, genetically de- and genetically degenerate races. And it is always thanks to this message and drawings transmitted by Alder Baran and received by Orsic and translated from ancient Sumerian to Sigrun that an interdimensional flying machine in the shape of a saucer was built. The Genestephlugus machine. <laughs> The I, I don't know how to say these words. I told you I was going to fail at it, but I'm trying. I'm just laughing at you. It's fine. Genestef Lugus Not machine. With you. But you know you. what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? It doesn't matter if I can find old information to back this up because we have new information. Oh, boy. From our friends, 
the Pleiadian channelers about Maria Orsic. Oh boy. Yeah. We we have this this new flood of information uh, about how the Vril Society was formed and what they did. So here's a little bit of that. As if you guys watched last week's episode, yeah, this is a little reminiscent of that. Germany. And Maria Orsic was the German German, so they said, a lady who claimed to have an extraterrestrial communication with the beings that uh, supposedly are from Aldebaran. So she founded this society, she was the leader of the Vril Society and whose members, whose members, and you can find this online, <laughs> this is not Rochelle's information, this is general knowledge, whose members were young and attractive women, yes, young and attractive, mysterious women with very, very long hair. And they had this hair uh, to maintain their telepathic communication as antennas. And um, they were providing Germans interesting information. The Germans were very interested, were passionate about being the best at everything, especially technologically. So once they found out about Maria and about the, the, the contact she had with those extraterrestrials, and about the information that she was providing, they got very interested. So she was, um, I, I, from what I think, um, providing them with a lot of information. She, she was also giving them the technology how to construct the ships. But now they were not, the ladies were not cooperating with the German Nazis. They were Okay, here becomes the, the simp defense of Maria Orsic and kind of of Hitler here in a second. Listen to this. Wow. Well, of the Pleiadians, I should say. Not actually aiding them with anything. That's another uh, maybe distortion of what, what has happened. And Rachel will explain that too. What happened was that they planned to alter, to influence some events within the German Nazi society. So they don't continue with their nuclear weapon developments. So <laughs> the Pleiadians give Hitler technology, but they're not bad because they did it for reasons. Got to love the Pleiadian and they, uh, and they channelers. they give him a nuke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not agreeing with this lady at all, but there is some other interesting connection between Hitler and the Pleiadians that I found. Because mm -hmm. some people, like, I'm not, again, I'm not agreeing with her that, like, the, the Pleiadians are good because they gave Hitler UFOs, but they didn't give him nukes or whatever, right? But in the Pleiadian stories, it's always, like, they're super anti-nuke. And maybe, maybe it's because, like, that's what can kill them and they don't want humans to have the ability to kill. I don't know. But, like, <laughs> I found this paper from 2021 called Why Hitler Did Not Have Atomic Bombs. And the, the story for a long time has basically been that, they just were focusing on other things or they didn't, uh, it got sabotaged somehow. And hold on, let me see this. I'm just going to read the conclusion really quick. Cause I find this interesting. Cause there's a, there's a claim essentially that <clears throat> Hitler didn't develop nukes because the Palladians wouldn't have helped him in other ways. It's kind of the idea. So let me see the conclusion here says contrary to, and it, it, this is based off of newly uh, released documents too. So it's not just speculation. It, it's a whole article, but it says contrary to the prevailing opinion, Nazi Germany could have produced a number of atomic bombs earlier than the U S with much less effort than used for the rocket program. However, Heisenberg and the other members of the uranium club did not work on nuclear weapons during world war II. They had no order to do it and they did not work voluntarily on any on the atomic bomb. Heisenberg had convinced himself that a bomb development program would be harmful to Germany's military strength. Maybe because the Palladians would stop giving them UFOs. 
Therefore, he thought or pretended that avoiding a bomb program was his patriotic duty. So it basically goes on to say, like, yes, the Germans were way ahead of us on nuclear fission. They had everything to develop a nuclear bomb. And it's been a question for a long time why they didn't. So if, again, I'm just saying, if they are getting information and stuff from the Palladians, maybe that's the trade-off. I don't know. I also saw somebody, was it Jax, sent a dollar saying that you have to review. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, you missed it. A cactus decided that if <coughs> people send in $100 in Super Chats, I have to do a review and read and review the Monster Gargoyle romance novel that so Thir- we're up to $39 dude I'm uh, she's gonna do it she has no choice and somebody else sent <sighs> <laughs> all right I, I I I'm behind this if you guys can raise a hundred dollars tonight Abby has to read Gargoyle Daddy Dom romance and give us a review I think you that is the, the worst the, the worst <laughs> This is the best audience in the world. They're paying you to read the books that you pretend you don't read already. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I let the cat out of no the bag? No. <laughs> I would never. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so what's your thoughts on that? Do you think do you think there's any Where's your Come back? I'm back. I okay, think, good. right? Okay. That I was, was asking a you. Sign. Yeah, that was a sign. That, I have to read the book. that she has to read the book. What, what were you whenever on, whenever on to something true and good, that's mm-hmm. when my audio cuts out. So that was why, you know, yeah. She needs to she needs to read uh, Gargoyle Daddy Dom romance for you guys. All right. So what I was asking you was, <laughs> what what's your thoughts? Do you think there's any? Plausibility. I mean, we know that Hitler essentially worshipped the Pleiadian Aryan race yeah. or the Pleiadian aliens, alien race, whatever. Right. Do you think there's any truth to the fact that like maybe they would have given him technology for foregoing nukes for for I, I, uh, I think they gave him technology. I don't mm-hmm. think they gave it to him for foregoing nukes. I mean, my understanding of the race is that they were just a couple steps behind that. We just beat him to it or no. No, they were ahead of us, but it was kind of like the it was kind of like the the space race with the with the Russians. They were way ahead of us. And all of a sudden we just pulled out from behind. In Oppenheimer, which may or may not have gotten it right, there's a Mm -hmm. moment where uh, uh, Dr. Oppenheimer gets a message about how what the Germans are working on. There's like a spy or whatever. And he's like, oh, good. They took a wrong turn. Um, And so he's really happy that they have went the wrong direction with their research. Right. That's kind of the, been the narrative for a while. And I'll, I'll link that thing. If people want to read it, it's basically saying like, that's not what happened. They just weren't working on it and they can't figure out why they're just like making the excuse that Heisenberg didn't want to work on it, but they don't have like a reason essentially. Okay. So it's kind of according to these, these documents, it's like they actually just weren't working on a nuclear bomb, which is interesting. It's that's weird because right. I'll, so all of the alien cults, we started because you guys got nukes and it feels like, is it true or is it just the excuse that they give? Are they I have actually no idea. afraid of us having nukes? I have no idea. I, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but yeah, I don't know. I just, 
it, it feels weird that like you have an <clears throat> alien species that's like super powerful, but they're like afraid of us having nukes, but they're willing to give us the type of technology that would lead right to it. That's the right. thing. I feel like they, they want all They're all path. deceptive in nature. That's the thing. It's like, I don't trust anything they say. It's, it's like, um, the super chats keep coming and I'm very angry. <laughs> um, stop it. Everybody stop it right now. <laughs> um, it's, it's like, don't, don't do that. That thing right there. Don't, no, don't. <laughs> we're, we're super scared of it. <laughs> well, I will read all of your super chats at the end of the show. So keep them coming. We'll, we'll get a, we'll get a nice special stream for you guys of a uh, daddy Dom oh gargoyle romancing a stone review, I guess. So this is what you guys ask for. I'm just saying like, th- this is what you're paying for. Not me. So that's, that's on you guys. Just I, I have taken note that this was your idea. (laughs) And Jax, I know that you said the first one. $25 to go. I will not forget that Jax started this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's let's move on. So there's this uh, reported UFO crash in 1936, which is interesting because everybody assumes that Roswell is kind of the first UFO crash, like ever, essentially, right? Um, and this one, again, it's it's hard to find stuff on it. So it's been reported. I'm not sure how plausible it is. Some people say that they feel like it's more plausible than Roswell itself. I don't know about that. There's way more info on Roswell, but that could also mean that they want us to look at that. Not this. I don't know. But it's said that a UFO crash landed in Germany's Black Forest near Freiburg in 1936 and was recovered by SS troops shortly afterwards. And the object uh, that crashed was allegedly taken to Vivelsburg Castle, which was the main headquarters of the Third Reich, where their top scientists worked to back engineer it and find ways to use this technology to their advantage. And here's where some of the stuff gets a little weird with like the Vril Society and the Thule Society and all the stuff they're doing, because this is in the 30s now. This isn't in the like late teens and 20 and early 20s of of Germany. And if people know about the anti-Masonic legislation in 1935, Hitler passed this thing, this anti-Masonic legislation that essentially closed down all secret societies. And this is where a lot of debunkers will say that this means all of their involvement and influence ended right here. Hitler was not into the occult. How dare you shame Hitler's name by claiming he was an occultist is essentially how it comes across from the debunkers. Right. It's like he, he was really he was, he was really an evil man, racist. but don't you say that he was into demonic sacrifices. He wouldn't, he wouldn't sacrifice a human being. Yeah. It, just 6 million of them. Yeah. You know, such no, a, he would just kill them for no reason. <laughs> he would just kill a bunch of people for no reason, but don't say he was an occultist who like sacrificed people in rituals. You weirdos. <sighs> anyway, I just find that argument. Like who are you defending dude? Anyway, well, what they're defending is occultists, essentially. They don't want to make satanic occultism look bad because it is, but they, yeah, anyway. So I just find the debunkers on this so interesting because we'll, I'll show you how that's bullshit. But essentially, what's more likely than that the Thule Society and the Vril Society and all these other societies were just dissolved and all of a sudden Germany was like esoteric free is that they were just absorbed into the Nazi party. This is kind of the the thing. So like there's some of these stories that will say the Thule Society did this in 1936 or the, again, like in this story with the Black Forest crash that the Vril Society used their technology, used their received Pleiadian knowledge with the craft to back engineer it essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And then people say, well, the Vril Society couldn't have been around in 1936 because in 1935 he disbanded them. I don't think that's true. 
I think what happened is that they were absorbed into the Annan Air Bay. So if you, uh, you, do you know about the Annan Air Bay at all? No, go for it. It's uh, basically, it was established by the SS in 1935. Because what happened is the SS ran by Heimlich, Heim, Heinrich Himmler. That's not even a hard one. Heinrich Himmler became the religious pope. He became the, essentially the pope of Nazism in a way. Um, but yeah, it was established in 1935 and it was devoted to the task of promoting the racial doctrines espoused by Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. So essentially, instead of this group saying this and this group saying this, we're not agreeing. They wanted to bring them all in under the authority of a pope like figure uh, with his own Vatican, as we'll get into in a minute, which a lot of people don't know about okay. uh, because Hitler wanted to be the godhead of this of this thing. He literally wanted to be worshipped as as the god or the antichrist of 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 the world. And. He, you can't do that if you have all these fractions everywhere. So I, I'm just saying I don't buy that this was like, uh, oh, they just went away. And you know what's funny is they'll say that they went away and that the Vril Society never existed. But then there's all these pictures of the Vril Society that I was able to find through a lot of, lot of, lot of research. I was this wondering w- what you were finding. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So this is the Vril. This is the, the the Vril Society in 1922. Checks out. Checks out. Yep, and if you're listening to this, it looks like a Midsummer Night's Dream, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And then this is the Vril Society again in 1939, after they were supposedly gotten gone. rid of. Just they were gone, but they're they're still doing parades. And they are like attractive <clears throat> women. Yeah, yeah, attractive long-haired women with all these occult symbols. I mean, you can if we zoomed up, you could kind of see it all. But there's like swastikas and weird sun disc things. Actually, Maria Orsic would wear like a sun disc in her hair very often. Huh. Um, but uh, here's back into fashion. Yeah, here's a picture of Maria Orsic. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, here's a picture of Maria Orsic. There's other ones. I. It's it's. Who knows if, she, yeah. if it's actually her? This is just what I, the picture that's always there. So yeah. I don't know. My wife she said it kind of looks like a drawing. I think it just looks like an old timey photo. It's been touched up the way they yeah. did. I think if it was a drawing, there wouldn't be such weirdness with her. <clears throat> right. With the shadows around her eyes. Right. Particularly. Yeah. Um, She kind of looks like Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. A little bit. Doesn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Very beautiful lady, but uh, very evil. So, <laughs> um, Unia Gull said witches in all caps. Yeah, that it kind of there's a rise in witchcraft right now. It's kind of interesting to see what Germany was like before the war as compared to like what we're like right now, our culture. Right. Yeah. Increasingly occultish. So answered Seder. Wow. She's pretty for a Nazi. Someone had to say it. (laughs) Yeah. She's pretty for a, for a woman, but for a Nazi. Uh. Um, so (laughs) let's talk. Are are you familiar with uh, like uh, the video game series, Castle Wolfenstein at all? Uh, Yeah, you are. Okay. So Castle Wolfenstein is actually based on a real thing. We have another $10. Are we almost at a hundred now? How dare you guys? You guys are the best for those who missed it. If it gets up to 200, PJ has to read it too. It's an audiobook, so he has <laughs> no excuse. Um, <laughs> all right, carry on. All right, so <laughs> Castle Wolfenstein is based on a real thing, but it's called the Vivelsburg Castle. I think I'm saying that mm. right this time, actually. So in 1933, Heimlich, Heimer Kindler 
Heinrich Himmler. See, I can't do this. He, <laughs> before they banished everything, right? They actually mm -hmm. set up their new religion. This is why I say it, it actually makes way more sense that they set up their new religion and their Vatican and everything like that before they absorb them all. So in 1933, yeah. Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, acquired Vivelsburg Castle, which is a castle near Paderborn in the German region of Westphalia. Okay. And Himmler intended to make the building into a center for the SS. And between 1936 and 1942, Himmler ordered the building expanded and rebuilt for ceremonial purposes. And during this time, he established festivals on both the summer winter solstices, which incorporated all these elements of pagan rituals, including sun and nature worship. And he planned for Vivelsburg Castle to be the center of all of the ceremonies. So essentially a, a, a Vatican. And in 1939, the SS established a concentration camp at the edge of the village whose main purpose was to ensure a cheap and continuous source of slave labor for the planned construction work. I'm still showing this picture of this chick. Uh, planned construction work rather than to operate as a profit-making enterprise. So basically, a lot of other concentration camps, were they were all working people to death, but they were like to make widgets and make money and stuff like okay. that. And this was just slave labor to build a castle. Got it. Um, and at this, at least... 1,285 people of the approximately 3,900 prisoners uh, were worked to death in this castle. So this is like the, I think it was like the first concentration camp, essentially. I'm bad on the dates on this, okay. but it was early on. Because <clears throat> Himmler was also the guy who invented the concentration camps. Uh, anyway, Vivelsburg Castle, he would consider his new Camelot. He even put up like a table, like a round table for his 12 knights. Why does and Camelot? He, yeah. Okay, so go ahead. The Arthurian legends are very um, utopian. And then there's this like prophecy that Arthur's going to come back. And then you have Wolfenstein calling his castle his new Camelot. But then you also see it with JFK. Right, yeah. Yeah, I need to I need to familiarize myself more with the Arthurian legends. I know them a little bit better than like a normal person, but I don't know them deeply enough. They I come think. off pretty wholesome. So do they? Okay. They they, they deal some of with them, right? some stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the like the conclusions are wholesome. Okay. Okay. So yeah, They're, he he yeah. was. Yeah, <laughs> that's all good. Uh, but yeah, he was trying to build his new Camelot, is what he said. That's his own words. And he even installed this Arthurian round table in the castle, and he chose 12 SS officers to serve as his followers. So there's 12 people at the at the head of this Nazi Vatican Camelot place, right? Nazi Vatican Camelot. <laughs> Nazi Camelot. Uh, and he envisioned it as this vast military residential quasi-religious complex, again, like a Nazi Vatican or a Mecca. And he went as far as to build two ceremonial rooms and again, more construction. The construction was supposed to take over 20 years and he only had like six or five, right? So he didn't complete it, but he did. Mm -hmm. He did make a few uh, ceremonial ceremonial rooms and I've got pictures of both oh of them. So this is uh this is Vivelsburg castle, which is interesting. Uh, oh. It's kind of triangular shaped. So that looks creepy as fuck, right? It's a little weird, huh? And then this is the crypt in Vivelsburg Castle. This is one of his ceremonial rooms. I guess they would like put the high-ranking dead in there and honor so them. So evil. It does look incredibly evil. And then this is the Hall of Supreme Leaders. Ah. And 
if you'll notice, that's a that's a black sun on the floor okay. in the middle there. Okay. So the black sun, for people who know, is like another Nazi symbol where it's got 12 Siegs, as in the two S's that you would see on a on an SS officer. They weren't actually S's. They were lightning bolts. They were a Nordic rune that was Sieg, which means victory. Mm-hmm. So this had 12 Siegs around a, a, a black Nordic hole. rune? Okay. Yes. Yes. Nordic. Nordic I know. <laughs> They're not yeah. very subtle. They're I'm not very subtle. Up. This is also the symbol on the Ukrainian soldiers, you know, the Azov yep. battalions yep. Uh, uniforms, in case you were curious. Yep. So, yeah, I have one other thing I want to read from a book here called Secret Places, Hidden Sanctuaries, Un- Uncovering Myster- Mysterious Sites and Symbols. So let me read a bit of this to you really quick. So it says, Vivelsberg stood on a site that had enormous resonance with the pagan mystics who advised him. Close by was the Teutonberg Forest, where the Germanic tribes defeated the Roman legions under Varus, halting the advance of the conquering Roman Empire, a significant triumph of German nationalism, much relished by the Nazis. Also nearby was Externistine, a rock formation that had been the pre-Christian, that had been the site of pre-Christian religious rites, most importantly, the castle stood on the intersection of certain ley lines, lending supposed authority to Himmler's declaration that Vivelsburg was the center of the world. There have been stories of other satanic rituals done in Vivelsburg Castle. One was done in, tw- uh, in 2000, most recently, but that story kind of got covered up because it looked bad. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Again, the the media has to protect the the Nazi or not the Nazis this time. They just have to protect the satanic cults as much as they can. And then there's all these stories about Himmler himself um, having this these rituals in the throne room and and basically doing blood sacrifices there. I couldn't find anything like super legitimate on it, so I'm not going to read any of the accounts. But like that's that's the claim. And my favorite thing is when you search for that and you can find some place that will tell you the date, but they won't tell you the details. So you search for the date, you search for everything. All you'll get is articles saying the Nazis didn't do ritual rights in this room built for ritual rights. How dare you? And it doesn't. That's all it says. So I just again, I find the the Nazi apologists in the media very interesting. Uh, well, we 14 we've, left to go. No, we, we got the 14. So oh, did we? Yeah. So I have to read it, but we also got two toward your read. So 98 left to go. Miss Melody. She wants me to read <laughs> Cargoyle Daddy Tom romances. Uh, you guys are the best slash worst. So <laughs> just the worst. I'm comfortable saying that. No, yeah. it's almost back to the, the whole Himmler and the castle and the, the cult rituals thing. It's almost like when you're evil enough to try to exterminate race of people you're also evil enough to (laughs) it's almost like that's like it's almost like gathering 12 people in a room to sacrifice a human being is not big potatoes compared to the 1200 people just outside the wall that you work to death yeah yeah no yeah (laughs) the the other thing I've concluded and it's actually it's a it's a bit of a comfort i guess mm-hmm. is that we've always been told like anybody could be this evil anybody's capable of being this evil and i agree but there i think there's a level of evil that you never get to unless you are doing it in service of um satan yeah the, yeah the 
child sexual abuse and um, slaughtering all of the Jews. Those are things that you do in service of Satan. Right, exactly. And I think that's what's so weird is like people will look at this and be like, oh, they killed six million people, but it couldn't possibly have been any type of blood ritual to serve their Aryan gods that they claim openly to serve. Um, because that would yeah. be weird, right? And it's like, what What about the Nazis wasn't weird? Yeah. The debunkers I, on the Nazi stuff are my favorite people. They're so dumb. It's hilarious. I love how I proposed this, that Hitler was worshiping the Pleiadians. And I thought it was a little bit out there, but it was like a reasonably, like a reasonably arrived at theory. And you're like, yeah, I have proof. <laughs> oh yeah. It's everywhere. I yeah. mean, it's in Once all you know of the texts. Like, what was that one I read earlier? Where it's like the Vril society was, you know, channeling the Aryan aliens. Like it's just right there. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but it's the last is buried deep. You have yes. to know what you're looking for to find this, it. This was one of the hardest bits of research I've done for an episode because everything was buried so deep for sure. Uh, and we haven't even got into some of the stuff that is oddly buried that I don't understand why it is. Mm. So the last thing I'm going to say about Vivelsburg Castle is that on March 31st, 1945, <clears throat> not wanting to let his Camelot fall into enemy hands, Himmler dispatched a special task force to Vivelsburg with orders to destroy it. The resulting fire destroyed the castle, although the ceremonial rooms survived relatively unscathed. So the two places that he definitely wasn't doing rituals in just didn't burn with everything else for some That's reason. So weird. Right. <laughs> so, so the question then is what ancient tech did they develop in this castle? If, if the Vril society brought them this crashed UFO, as it's claimed, what were they working on? So the crash saucer in the black forest was taken and combined with information from the Vril society. They received through channeling was made into a, f- a further project called Hannah, Hannah I think. And the Hannibal thing is interesting because this was another one that a few years ago you could look it up and be like, hey, the Nazis had blueprints for this thing called Hannibal and it was like not hidden at all that this was like an uh, it was nobody's saying that that was built. They're saying they had blueprints and now even that has been like scrubbed from everywhere. So you can find some of the weirder fringier stuff that like goes into all of the weird fringy stuff, but not the not the stuff that you would show a normie and be like, no, like, look here. Here it is. Right. And some of these luckily do still have attached documents that prove that these were real blueprints, but people still won't believe it because they've just covered it up in this weird way. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's this German aircraft historian called Henry Stevens. And he says that Hannah one, Hannah one, because was one through four was supposed to be the first large flying saucer developed in Germany. According to plans allegedly obtained from classified German SS files, the Hannah one was approximately 75 feet in diameter and probably lifted off for the first time in August 1939, a few weeks before the outbreak of World War II. So according to some leaked, some some deep, you know, leaked documents from the SS files that this thing did take off. So I don't know. Um, and I want to say this before I move into the next section, this idea of Nazis getting help from the Pleiadians, if it's not established enough, there are some actual real quotes from real Nazis about this exact thing. We talked about Werner von Braun last week who said, how did you get that technology so fast? We got help from them. And he points mm-hmm. up. There's also a guy named Herman Oberth and he was in the German rocketry program. And he said, quote, we were helped by people from other worlds. So there, there's more than one quote of X Nazis, X Nazis, LOL, LOL, as in Nazis that we let run the CIA in the yeah paperclip that uh, said, no, like we didn't develop this stuff entirely on our own. So 
<clears throat> so it almost makes you wonder, like, did any alien ever crash a UFO or are all the crashes? Let's us? leave you a little gift. Yeah. I wonder. Like us test driving it and failing. That is, well, that's the claim of um, what's his face in the in the. I'm sorry. I can't remember his name, but the guy who's testifying before Congress lately, didn't he say something along those lines? Oh, um, in one of the two hearings, I think he said a lot of the crashes are because we're trying to reverse engineer this stuff and crashing them. Yeah, but he yeah. also said, well, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Okay, night. we're going to talk about that tomorrow night. So if you guys want to hear more about the uh, UFO hearings in Congress, uh, come over to rockfin.com slash conspiracy pill and you can watch it live there. Or you can uh, get it the next day on conspiracypill.locals.com. So, nice. all right. So, Foo Fighters. You familiar with the Foo Fighters? Yes. This I know about. This you know about. <laughs> well, I don't think you do because I'm not talking about Dave Grohl. I'm oh. not talking about the guy that colluded with Courtney Love to kill Kurt Cobain. Not oh, that guy. Shoot. Okay. What are the Foo yeah. Fighters? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Foo. Well, where they get their name from is that in the last week of nine of November 1944 allied pilots flying over Western Europe by night reported seeing fast moving round glowing objects following their aircraft and they described these round glowing objects as fiery and glowing red white or orange and some said that they resembled Christmas tree lights in the sky essentially okay and they reported that they seemed to just toy with the aircraft they'd follow them they'd actually follow them in formation too which is important um, but they would make these wild turns before vanishing. Some people described them as oblong. Some people described them as round. I think one guy described it as oblong with a round glowy part on it because he was maybe closer than the other people. Is someone in your office? My son. <laughs> my guitar is swinging. It's like, guitar. oh my gosh, there's a ghost. <laughs> hey, I love you, bud. I'll, I'll be out in a bit. <laughs> All right. Anyway, yeah, you can't see his hand, but you can see the guitar, the guitar swinging on yeah. the wall. That's that's funny. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> no, it's not ghosts this time, guys. Uh, this that's time. my son. So it's <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. anyway, anyway, uh, where was I? <laughs> they'd make these wild turns and they would just simply vanish. They would go at speeds that were incredible, like way, 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 way too fast. Uh, and um, like I said, they flew together in formation and they behaved as if they were under intelligent control. And the thing that's important to understand about this is this is not one person's account. This is not tabloid stuff. This was told by so many soldiers. It became like that's how it became named. And that's how it eventually became talked about in the mainstream press. This was not like, oh, I saw a thing when I was tired. It's they were so common that it was not just the Americans talking about it. It was right. the British pilots. And it was and then <laughs> it's Sander. All right, buddy. I'll see you in a bit. Okay. I'll see you in a bit. He's so cute. <laughs> he is cute. He comes in to tell me, I'm going to go to bed. Okay, bud. <laughs> Do you know what he was doing right before we started the show? I told you I was going to go out and grab a drink. I'm out there and he's cutting a zucchini. And I'm like, what are you cutting up zucchini for? Are you going to eat it raw? He's like, no, I want to put them on my eyeballs because that's what you do when you relax. <laughs> Not cucumbers. <laughs> he's just, he's like, I'm going to cut zucchini and put them on my eyes so I can relax. Kids. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll get back to my notes. So the Foo Fighters, they were a band <laughs> formed. At, oh, no, sorry. Wrong. Wrong Foo Fighters. So the Foo um, Fighters sound a lot like they called them Foo Fighters then, but it yeah. sounds a lot like how we're experiencing UFOs today. 
of it's mostly our military people. It's mostly people who are out over the ocean, Navy people, right. um, commercial pilots. Right, they're exactly. Things, uh, they're seeing things a lot. Yeah. But we're just, we're dismissing. There are tons and tons and tons of sightings and we're dismissing them all as, well, that was just an equi- equipment failure. That was just a sensor failure. That was just your you being sleepy and stupid. Yeah, hold those thoughts because I'm going to get into that whole thing about about how it's related to to stuff going on today. Um, but uh, yeah, what, one of the things that was really interesting about these these uh, UFOs, these Foo Fighters, is that they never displayed hostile behavior. So it's not like they were shooting down our planes or wrecking right. them or crashing into them. They were observing. They were following mm. them. They were telling them. And then at so, at sometimes because their whole thing was, hey, we're in the sky, and if you're not one of us, we're going to shoot you down. Um, they tried to shoot these things down and they were never able to hit them. Uh, there was one report. I'm going to say this one report that doesn't match with the rest. And I think it's bullshit for a lot of reasons, but basically he's like, yeah, I shot it. And then it shot back at me. And he, he like explains this whole thing. That's just like, no, it didn't. No, yeah. It's one of those things like, no, it didn't dude. Like literally hundreds and hundreds of pilots were, were seeing these and you're the one guy that it shot at. I don't buy you. Yeah. I don't buy it. And it just sounds fantastical anyway. Yeah. So again, these, these they weren't displaying hostile behavior and they couldn't be outmaneuvered or shot down. And they were so common that they got their own name. At first they were called like some people called them kraut fireballs, which I kind of love <laughs> kraut fireballs. Oh, that's great. Uh, but for the most part, they got called the Foo Fighters, which there's a few different stories on this. But essentially there was this comic. I I'm, didn't put it in my notes. It's like Archie Stover. It's something if that's not what it's called. It was a comic and they would use the word foo as like to mean nonsense. Mm. So they're just like this bunch of nonsense in the sky these foo fighters it's just gotcha. i don't know 40s lingo um it, it, but like foo fighters like it's it just it rolls off the tongue yeah i think it does uh so the military took the sighting seriously back then because the military does this at times where they'll take things seriously and then they won't and they suspected that these mysterious sightings had to have been a german super weapon because this is what they're worried about towards the end of the war is this german wunderwaffe the, the wonder weapon the super weapon and uh on December 13th, 1944, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force in Paris issued a press release, which was printed in the New York Times the next day, officially describing the phenomena as a new German weapon. And actually, I think I have that article here. Um, fireballs, stalks, planes over the sky, balls of fire stalk U.S. fighters in night assaults over Germany. And uh, it's just articles, like I said, in the New York Times, January 2nd, 1945, telling essentially what the pilots were seeing. So it's not uh, tabloid stuff. It's not one guy said something and wrote home his wife. This was like investigated by the military for a long time. So was the military right? Could these sightings be explained by secret German projects towards the end of the war? Because Germany was working on some pretty weird stuff. And I want to talk about some of the weird stuff they're working on and if any of that could be related to what the Vril Society is talking about. But before I do that, I want to address some of the debunkers again on this one because some of the debunkers are really silly on this okay. as well. Cool. One of the things they'll say, it had to be St. Elmo's Fire. You know what St. Elmo's Fire is? It's this rare is phenomenon with planes. Yeah, St. Elmo's Fire. It's this rare pen- phenomenon that happens with planes and ships where like uh, fire will, like some kind of electrical sparkling fire thing comes off the t- wingtips of planes. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've heard of that. It's really rare. And it doesn't follow you in formations and bank and turn and fly away. Yeah. The other thing they'll say is ball lightning, which is extremely erratic and also not at all the way they described it. 
That's, that's um, how you. And it also way more rare than Elmo's, St. Elmo's Fire. Like it's one of the rarest things ever. That's how you account for one sighting. Maybe two. Maybe. Yeah. That's that's how you explain away one or two credible witnesses saying they saw something. You right. can't explain away the sheer number with something like that. Yeah. What did did I am I missing something? Do I have to read the book now too? We're t- I'm trying. Oh, okay, okay. We're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were all so excited to send in Rembrandts until they reached my limit and then they stopped. <laughs> So <laughs> I understand what it is, guys. The other thing people will say, uh, V2 rockets and other missiles, which again don't glow orange and don't look like giant balls of fire and don't bank and don't follow information, uh, or ever blow anything up. And then just fatigue is the obvious one. It's like, oh, it had to been fatigue because it wasn't like 500 pilots from multiple different armies. You know, it was just like one dude, right? So all of these are just kind of silly. And all of it's really, really dumb when you realize that there's pictures of the Foo Fighters. So here's one. And again, like they're World War II pictures. So they're not going to be wonderful. But with all the pilots seeing them and some oh, of them wow. getting pictures, uh, like th- this one's much better. I love like, how these are exactly the same amount of blurry as the ones we take today. <laughs> I love it, right? <laughs> but pe- people are always like, why is it always blurry? Why is it always blurry? At this point, with with AI and Photoshop, how it is, a blurry photo is not evidence against it being real. It's evidence against it. It's evidence for it being real that you're taking it in the heat of the moment, right? In the in the action, you don't have time to set it up and focus <clears throat> it correctly. I don't know if you've ever tried to zoom on a phone camera, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's worthless. It's worse than a Polaroid at that point. Like, like phone cameras can be beautiful and amazing close yeah. up. And if you have time to set up the shot, yeah, but like anything quick looks like crap. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a good photo. Yeah. I like this one. So, uh, there's, uh, I want to get into some of the, the possibilities, the, the planes that maybe are getting mistaken for these things that the Germans were working on. And one of them is called the sack AS six. And this was developed by Arthur sack in 1944. He was a local farmer who entered his AS-1 circular-winged model in the first Reich-wide contest for motorized flying models held at Leipzig. Leipzig. Is that how you say it? Leipzig? Leipzig, yes. So the reason this one gets uh, thrown in there is because here's a picture of the actual thing, but there's not a lot of good pictures of it. So there's better pictures of the models of it and pictures mm. of it. But like, this is the concept, Ooh. right? It's a round wing. It looks like a UFO. So if you yeah. see it from like above or below, sure, it looks like a flying saucer. Sort the of. Pro- the problem, yeah, sort of, <laughs> right? Like sort of. Like, it would be, it'd be a weird sight. Like you would be like, what the hell is that in the sky? I've not seen a plane like that. It would be a weird sight, but also as a pilot with the amount of attention to detail that you have. Yes. Piloting then was much harder than now, too. The amount of yeah. attention to detail, no one's going to be confused about what this is. They're going to describe the propeller. They're going to describe all of the... They're going to be like, it had a weird wing structure. It kind of... You know what I mean? It's also got labels on it. It looks like a plane. Yeah. Yeah. Like and a cockpit. Yeah. Cl- clear the, features. The other thing is, this is a modern conception of UFOs. So if people don't know this... I didn't put this in my notes, but I'll try to remember the story off the top of my head. But there's a guy... In 1947, why can't I remember his name? Kenneth Arnold. And he was flying in Washington, and he saw a group of UFOs. 
And he described them as having skipped across the sky like saucers. He did not say they were round in shape. But the term flying saucer didn't even come around until 1947. And the way that these people are describing them, they're not UFOs. They're not round, you know, flat. They're not that. So, like, maybe some of the stuff the Nazis are working on is that. But it's not what they're describing. So even that doesn't match up. And also, this thing just didn't work. Um, Sax went on. It's a yeah. failed reverse engineer. It's a failed, <laughs> yeah. Sachs went on to build four additional models and each increasing in size before building the final prototype that was built in January of 1944. So it would have matched time wise. Uh, but five flight attempts later, he got it to hop off the ground a few times and then they scrapped the project. So like it's it's not. Yeah, this is not it. Uh, the other one that gets brought up is the Horton Ho. 229 Horton hears a hoe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Horton H O 229. The adult, the adult, version. the adult version of Horton. Here's a who. Yeah, it's <laughs> and that's because it's the first stealth airplane. And uh, one of the things I didn't mention yet about the Foo Fighters is they never showed up on radar. Mm. Like people were seeing them. The radars weren't picking them up. Ground radars weren't picking them up. And they're like, well, I'm not a hallucinating it. And they took yeah. some pictures and it's still not showing up on any radar. So that's weird in and of itself. But yeah. the Horton HO was kind of the first stealth airplane. Uh, Herman Goring put out a call to German aircraft manufacturers for a light bomber design that could meet uh, his three by 1,000 requirement. What that was is it had to carry 1,000 kilograms of munitions. 1,000, it had to fly 1,000 kilometers at, or kilometers at 1,000 kilometers per hour. So, like, he wanted someone to build a plane that could essentially bomb New York was the idea right? Like a silent sneak up on America and bomb New wow, York plane. Yeah. That's what this was developed for. And Reimar and Walter, these brothers, the uh, Horton brothers came up with the flying wing design. They based this idea off of a glider. This plane didn't have, you can see, didn't have any tail. Mm-hmm. So I had less drag and it was naturally somewhat radar resistant. According to some things I read, basically without the tail signature and some other things, they would just not realize it's a plane on the radar. I don't, oh, I don't know how would, true that is. It would clock more like a big bird. Right. Yeah, that's at least that's the theory. But beyond that, they had planned to put charcoal and sawdust in between uh, the the metal so that way it would absorb uh, electronic. I don't know if oh. that would work, but that was the plan to make this essentially the first stealth bomber. Nice. Uh, and this large wing could carry a heavy load and a bunch of munitions, but it needed jet engines to get up to speed, which were extremely hard to procure to- at this point in the war. And the project was eventually passed on to the German company Gothar Wagon Fabric. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> the, the, the Gotha team were able to install the jet engines and they actually got this thing to fly, but it only flew like three times. So there was three <laughs> prototypes that were built. One was destroyed in a crash after engine failure. And the and one of them is in the Smithsonian today. Where are the other ones at? My guess is that it's at Groom Lake because this is uh, by all intents and purposes, this is where they got the B2 stealth bomber idea from. They got it mm. from the Germans who basically developed half of it already. Yeah. And we know now that right after World War II, they built Area 51 at Groom Lake. And the first thing that they supposedly did was make the B2 stealth bomber. And the, these brothers were not part of Operation Paperclip, but they didn't have this project anymore in America. We know took the thing. So it's mm-hmm. all but confirmed that this was like, yeah, we took that technology and developed it here. Right. Which rightfully so. I'm not saying that's bad at all. Like if yeah. they develop something and you, you defeat them and you take their their stuff. Cool. 
Um, but the reason I brought it up as a possible UFO is because uh, supposedly a lot of UFO sightings in the 50s and 60s are contributed to the B-2 stealth bomber not being known about. So there are like triangular long-winged UFO reports because they don't look like another plane. They don't have a tail, things like that. So if you look at some older UFO reports, even detailed in Project Blue Book, yeah, Project Blue Book, uh, they probably would have been B-2 stealth bombers. So this, for a few reasons, could have been it, but... There was only three of them ever made and they didn't really fly around or do anything. And they only flew about 800 kilometers an hour. And these people were reporting that some of these Foo Fighters are going like more like two to 3000 miles per hour. It's like impossible speeds, right? And doing yeah. impossible 90 degree turns and things like are just defy gravity. So any winged craft is not doing what they're saying it's doing. Well, that's what they're, they're saying about things like the Tic Tac and, and uh, gimbal <clears throat> videos is like, not only are we seeing things, something that we don't recognize as our own, but it's doing things that defy our understanding of what's possible given the laws of physics. Right. And that's why I wanted to get into some of the laws of physics defying stuff that the Nazis might have been working on. Mm. And the other one, I'll just throw this out there really quick. There was the Messerschmitt M262, which was just the first jet-powered fighter. Some people throw this out, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because they were fighting these things for years. They knew what these were like. Yes, it's amazing. The Germans developed the first jet airplane. It was fast. It was dangerous. These pilots weren't like, oh, that plane I have seen and shot down 500 aircrafts in the duration of the war is also somehow the Foo Fighters is just silly, right? I've read a lot of like firsthand source material of what it was like to be a pilot in World right. War II. And um, there was a lot of it. They knew they knew what they were doing. They were very detail-oriented. You had to be super detail-oriented to survive up there. The pilots had a, a super low life expectancy. Dogfighting is incredibly dangerous, and it was it was incredibly dangerous. So these these people aren't seeing something like that and being confused. Yeah, people just don't want to believe that these many, many pilots can see something that they can't readily explain. It just freaks people out, right? Yeah. So what about some non-official designs? We've got Rudolf Schreiber who was a German engineer who gave an interview to a German news magazine, Der Spiegel, Der Spiegel, uh, Der Spiegel in which he claimed that he had designed a craft powered by a circular, by a circular plane of rotating turbine blades. That was about 49 feet wide uh, or 49 feet in di- in diameter. And he mm-hmm. said that the project had been developed by him and his team at BMW's Prague works uh, until April, 1945 when he fled Czechoslovakia and then he said his design for the disc and a model were stolen from his workshop in Berman Haven Le Berman Haven Le in 1948. <laughs> and he was convinced that the Czech agents had basically built his craft for a foreign power. So he's saying I huh. developed this thing at BMW um, and they stole my designs. Uh, but he also tells a similar story in Der Spiegel a few months later where the details are changed. And that's about all we have is this guy's story. So not a ton to go on. But the interesting character in this is a guy named Victor Schauberger. And he was this Austrian forest caretaker, a natural. This is, I'll read the, the description of him on Wikipedia because I think it's interesting. An Austrian forest caretaker, naturalist, philosopher, inventor, and pseudoscientist. Uh, he wanted to develop a holistic approach to how humans think about flight by observing and copying what he saw in nature, right? So he had some very interesting ideas. I'll just read you uh, a little excerpt of like his theory on how we're doing flight wrong. So in Implosion Magazine, 
he said that the aeronautical and marine engines had incorrectly designed the propeller. So the propeller on a boat and on a plane is essentially a brake screw. And he's like, that's not right. And he says, quote, at best demonstrated by nature in the case of the aerofoil maple seed, today's propeller is a pressure screw and therefore a braking screw whose purpose is to allow the heavy maple seed to fall parachute-like slowly towards the ground and be carried away sideways by the wind in the process. No bird has such a whirling thing on its head nor a fish on its tail. Only man-made use of this natural brake screw for forward propulsion. And the propeller rotators uh, are, sorry, as the propeller rotates, so does the resistance rise by the square of the rotational velocity. This is also a sign that this is supposed to be a propulsion or this supposed propulsion device is unnaturally constructed and therefore out of place. So basically he wanted to, you know how like a fish can swim upstream. Mm-hmm. Essentially it's creating a vortex in the water and like it's, it's being pulled up the stream. So he was, he was of this idea of creating vortexes to pull machines instead of using a braking screw kind of in reverse. So you know what he's talking about with those like maple things that fall down yeah. and they fall slow because they're working off the same ideas. What a propeller it's like is. a whirly gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. A thing of a jig. What's uh, what you call it? Aerial. No, I, I think I think whirly gig <laughs> is an actual like scientific term. But that's like sure. That's sure. Fun. We'll go with that. I'm going to Google um, it. <laughs> <laughs> I got who's it's and what's it's galore. Uh, so he wanted planes to essentially be pulled and not pushed. And what I find interesting is, again, I read that thing from Wikipedia. Wikipedia calls him a pseudoscientist. And they literally just, like, this is different. It didn't used to be this way. It just gives you early life. <laughs> and that quote, not how he died, not where he went, not what he did, not all the inventions and all the scientific breakthroughs he made. Early life, that quote. That's it. That's all it's on Wikipedia. And even on YouTube, when you search for him, you will find, like, even <laughs> though he's a famous scientist, you'll find other people for pages and pages until you, like, find anything on Victor Schauberger. Uh, but he developed this thing called the trout turbine, and he paved the way for further research into the use of natural energy sources like wind and solar power. And he was really smart, and he did a lot of great things. I'm not going to go into it because this isn't, like, a praising Victor Schauberger show or whatever. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but he was... He, he was more capable of building the thing that he's claiming to have built than I think Wikipedia and the mainstream media want you to believe. Because in 1940, he developed what some consider to be the first functioning flying saucer. And he used this thing called the Repulsine. It was like the engine that drove it. There's a name for this flying saucer, supposedly, but I can't even try to pronounce it. Okay. Uh, but during World War II, Schauberger worked in aviation research where he was involved uh, in the Department of Flying Discs. These were highly experimental aircraft that utilized unconventional propulsion systems such as a natural vortex motion of air, and he called his design the repulsing engine. And we don't have any proof that he ever flew one of these disc-shaped crafts, but there are a lot of stories, and one of his prototypes still exists. So we know he actually built the repulsing engine. And let me just show you some pictures of, of this thing really quick. So... This is kind of his different engines, his different flying saucers they built, and kind of how it does this weird, I can't even explain it, whirling motion that creates essentially a tornado inside of the craft that like pulls it upwards. Um, but we like this isn't like the Hanabu where they're claiming it didn't exist, they're just saying it didn't work essentially. Like these are real designs by him. And in fact, I have a video. I'm just going to play a little bit of it. It was like hour and a half long documentary about Victor Schoberger's like last remaining repulsing engine. Okay. So there's just like two little parts of this. I kind of want to show you just to show that like he really made this thing. 
July 2007. At a convention of the Association for Implosion Research, Jörg Schauberger and Klaus Rauber unwrap a long-lost piece of equipment. It is the last Repulsin that Victor Schauberger ever built. In 1958, it was lost in America. Which, that's just, I'm sorry, that's just weird yeah. in and of itself. That's why I wanted to play that part. It's like, in 1958, this lost years of his life that aren't on Wikipedia, but he journaled about them, and his son has the journals, yeah. and you can find stuff about this. He came to America to pitch this design and his trout engine, and then somehow went back to Austria without his repulsing design. It just stayed in Texas, possibly with NASA. Mm. It's very interesting, yeah, is that's, my point. Um, Weird as fuck, as the kids say. <laughs> yes, and that kind of goes with this next part of the, the, the story. So watch this. And here it stands on the test bench. Victor Schauberger's repulsing from the year 45. Richard Feyerabend had brought the machine back to Texas shortly before he died. He wanted to know whether it could produce a lift. In other words, overcome the force of gravity. Hal Puthoff, head of institute and a renowned experimental physicist, showed... Do you, know, do you remember the name Hal Puthoff? No, he was involved in a uh, project uh, Stargate. Of course he was. And the SRI research into like psychic uh, remote viewing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, because Jörg all Schau of our programs were headed up by former Nazis or adjacent or, you know, <laughs> occultists who were like, yeah, yeah, yeah doing weird stuff. Adjacent. <laughs> yeah, adjacent. Over <laughs> the test stand. Putoff's colleague, Scott Little, used a stroboscope lamp to test whether the material would be deformed with a rising speed of revolution. At 2,000 revolutions per minute, the tests were aborted. There was concern that the half-century-old machine would fly apart. I must say, one of the things I was impressed with was uh, the quality of the construction, considering it was from the 40s. And, uh, for example, when we put it on its bearings and spun it around, it spun very freely, as good as any modern bearings, actually. And so... Uh, I could see that its uh, function was to generate some kind of vortex airflow. And so what we wanted to do is look to see if, uh, when it was spun at high speeds, <clears throat> whether it would generate any, any lift. And what was the result of your test? Unfortunately, uh, we didn't uh, see any lift. Now, <clears throat> there are two aspects of this that we wondered about after the fact, and that is we only had pictures of the device uh, before we received it, and there were at least two parts of the device that uh, were not provided us. Mm. One of the parts we had pictures of, photos of, and so we were able to fabricate that uh, part of the device to add to what was sent to us. And then there was another smaller camp that we had no information on its structure. It wouldn't look like it would pay, play a major role, but you know we can't be sure. So when we didn't see a good effect, we didn't know if perhaps uh, we were still missing a significant part. Like mm. this? And yeah. Cool. So this thing just ends up in Texas in 1958, huh. possibly with NASA. <sighs> They get it back, and it's missing maybe a crucial piece, and it doesn't t lift. But according to Victor Schauberger's notes and other people around him, the first time he built one of those small repulsing engines out of copper like we're seeing, mm -hmm. it took off and hit the ceiling. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying it's at least it, – of everything we've looked at, it's the closest possibility, I think, to a real functioning flying saucer made by, made by the Nazis. Have his notes been – authenticated as his I believe so but I didn't look super hard into all of that his son says they're his but okay. I don't know yeah because the guy who the, that guy on screen that we were just looking at that's his or not his son is his son or is his grandson I guess it'd be his son yeah mm. okay. yeah his son so he's kind of 
got his old notes and old pictures. There's actually a whole, I don't have it pulled up anymore, or maybe I do. No, I don't. There's old pictures of him working on it and pieces of it and stuff like that, which is kind of how they're refabricating this design. But if you want to watch that documentary, um, I'll put it into like Discord or try to link it in the notes later. It's pretty interesting. It's called Victor Schauberger, Comprehend and Copy Nature. It's a documentary from 2008. You can find it on YouTube. And again, I only had time to play little parts and like watch the whole thing, mm. but there's some interesting stuff in there. It's almost like when you don't have a foundation for your science and instead you're reverse engineering something that you got from aliens, that um, the, the link to your technology would be fairly tenuous. That yeah. if one guy dies, one guy doesn't communicate it, a war ends and they're all prisoners of war and shunted off to various things that the technology could be lost fairly quickly. Well, right. I mean, that's what that was what was a, a, a kind of a different way of looking at the moon landing stuff is when they said, hey, we lost the technology to go back. I'm looking at it now going, maybe they really did. Maybe these yeah. people had secret esoteric knowledge that just did not get passed on because going to the moon on the, you know, essentially a calculator, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, computer uh, in 1969 sounds impossible unless they're getting some type of help from from yeah. some from someone else right when even if you even if you pull back from like the secret esoteric part of things and you just say this this science didn't work up slowly the way that you'd expect science to that there's not this foundation where you know one person doesn't pass on his ideas but somebody else can come to the same conclusion really easily like when they split the atom as soon as people knew it was possible then everybody was doing it because it was like Oh, we get it. It was the next logical step in science, right? Yeah, Yeah. our science worked up to this. This was inevitable. Whereas if you are reverse engineering something or if you're being handed something that you don't completely understand and you're just following instructions, that can be a lot harder to reproduce over and over as people leave NASA or get older, didn't take good enough notes, etc. Right, yeah. Burn the notes because they're afraid of (laughs) the evil knowledge. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah. Um, one of the things I didn't get into is the Nazis were also the first people to develop helicopters, but mm. obviously like I just didn't bring it up much cause it's not, there's no way it's a foo fighter is my point. Right. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting is they were interested in this thing called VTOL or vertical mm. takeoff and landing. So they're mm. the first one to develop helicopters. And then in 1953, Canada developed its first VTOL aircraft and it looks a lot like Victor Schauberger's design and it kind of worked. Huh. And I mean, it did take off. Uh, it was kind of dangerous to fly because they didn't really know how it fully worked, but they made a circular saucer-like hovering vehicle in Canada in 1953 at the beginning of the Cold War. And it if you read the, I'm not going to go into it, but if you read the documents on it, the way they're explaining how it works sounds exactly like the principles of the repulsing engine. So yeah, make it take it. Yeah. Anyway. It's possible yeah. is my point. Victor Schauberger's idea is possible. We know that it works. It also is like if the Nazis were directly talking to these people and reverse engineering, but also talking to the Pleiadians and that mm-hmm. link is cut off. Yeah. So you're trying to reverse engineer something, but you don't have the manufacturer to talk to. You don't have somebody to troubleshoot with. Of, of course, we're going to have like some stuff like this and then it's going to fall off because people just don't get it. And they don't know how to fix it. Hitler himself wanted to be a god so bad that he was turning away help from all kinds of um, magicians. So mm. if his whole rise to power was in, 
was due to, you know, these black magic magicians and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And he's turning them away because he's trying to like rise himself up above Mm -hmm. everyone. It would make sense. He would lose his access, right? I don't know. Maybe. It's a thought. So with all that said, one of the things that we got to get into is die Glocke. Die Glocke. Die Glocke or the Nazi Wunderwaffe. Wait, before we move on from helicopters, can we just acknowledge (laughs) that helicopters are something that one, we see them in Egyptian hieroglyphs or things that look like helicopters and we see them in Da Vinci's drawings. Yes. Yeah. And Da Vinci, who was a deep into, yeah, all kinds of occultic and and secret societies. So weird, weird that the Germans would have uh, come up with this first. Uh, good news. Jesus wins says that's why helicopters are death traps. Now we know. Now we know. My dad was a pilot, like a small plane pilot. Uh, he did like uh, crop dusting and stuff like that back in the day. And he won't get in a helicopter. He's like, I can fly planes. I will not get in a helicopter. I've been in one of my life and it was a little freaky. Not going to lie. So PJ doesn't feel left out when Abby does her review. $20. Wow. You guys are the best and worst. worst. You're the worst. Let's go. All right. So <laughs> we got to talk about the Glocke. Uh, the Glocke is also known as the Nazi bell. Have you ever heard of this thing? I haven't. I don't think I've ever seen this. Okay. Oh, shit. Okay. So this is probably the, if it's real, the best match up to what these Foo Fighters would look like in shape and size, essentially. Okay. And supposedly what it could do, uh, depending on which story you listen to. Uh, but Die Glocke was a supposedly a top secret Nazi scientific device first described by Polish journalist Igor Witowski in Prada a Wundowaffe <laughs> in 2000. He said he said his claims were recycled from a 1960s rumor published in the book Morning of the Magicians. And just a, as a note, a lot of the Vril stuff that you're reading online comes from that 1960s book, The Morning of the Magicians. So okay. it's a lot of speculation about Nazi esoteric uh, cult-like things, right? So this actually became popular uh, due to military author Nick Cook, who was the CEO of defense industry firm Dynamix, and he wrote The Hunt for Zero Point and focused on the Wunderwaffe. And <laughs> and uh, a lot of people said the book was not super credible. Uh, it was housed in a facility, so according to the book, it was housed in a facility called Derisa, or The Giant, near the Weinzenklaus mining. <laughs> These are not right at all, guys. Uh, near the Czech border. And uh, it was developed by a man named Hans Kammler, who did exist. And we're going to talk more about Hans Kammler in a minute. He's a guy who also ran the V2 rocket program with uh, Werner von Braun. Mm. So the physical attributes of this are supposedly that it is 12 to 15 feet high, which would match the descriptions, essentially, of, of the Foo Fighters. And about 12 feet wide, it was hard and heavy metal with a lighter metal on the outside called leaked metal, leaked light metal. I don't know. Light metal in German. Also, it used, according to some stories, beryllium peroxide and thorium. And it had all these hieroglyphics on the oh, bottom. I forgot to grab a picture of the hieroglyphics, but the Germans put all these like Nordic runes and hieroglyphics around the bottom, according to certain blueprints and ideas of this thing. Nordic runes and Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Why not? Sounds like them. Uh, And again, this thing was supposedly that it was supposedly tested in this thing called the henge. And this is actually one of the interesting things about this is this is a real structure found outside of that mine I was talking about. It's this 
they call it the henge, but it looks like a circular cage. And supposedly yeah. what they would do is they would um, put uh, chains around all the pillars and then tie them to the, the Nazi Wunderwaffe, the, the, the Glocke. And then mm-hmm. it would fly up. And instead of going off all crazy, they could see how the, the lift would work by basically tethering it to this, this Stonehenge thing. Right. Wow. So that way, if there was a problem, it wouldn't like fly off a million miles an hour in the wrong direction. So wait, is Stonehenge- we don't know what this henge was for. Is Stonehenge also a takeoff and landing spot? Question mark. Question mark. We'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. I'm so glad. (laughs) Sort of. So according to these books that have been written on it, it uh, it glows and it rotates and it has these anti gravitational effects. Mm. So it's using some of the principles that have been described by uh, Schauberger and and uh, others. So. It, ha- it comes from a. It uses an unknown energy source that could sustain flight past the Earth's atmosphere. Because there was actual plans. The Nazis literally did have plans to build a moon base. Like I know that that whole thing has been expanded into a lot of fiction, and there's been books written about it as if it happened. But it was an actual Nazi plan to eventually establish a moon base. I mean, they literally did have yeah. Werner von Braun creating rockets for them. So they they if they kept him, they would have made it to the moon first, right? This is. I brought this up in the Challenger episode, but where did even just the idea that going to the moon was a good idea or like the thing that needed to be done, like whoever gets to the moon first wins the Cold War, like where does that even come from if you don't have some concept that beings live up there that you're trying to access first? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it's the moon. Who cares? Unless you're thinking you're going to launch, you know, rockets from space and that's going to be more effective than they already had intercontinental ballistic missiles essentially yeah. with the V2. So I don't get it. I, I don't know. They literally the V2 could go outside of the atmosphere and then come back down like on targets. It, it had a, ra- a shorter range of our intercontinental ballistics. They had like 2000 miles. But that's still insane. Right. From 1945. There's so much that we take for granted in our history. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, yeah, Why? Yeah. You two two countries deeply hated each other and everything they stood for. Like it, uh the US and Russia. And yeah. and they just kind of agreed that whoever got to the moon first won. Well, what else did US and Russia have in common in 1947 and after? They all had a bunch of Nazi scientists. Nazi scientists. And they're just like, "Oh, now we realize we have to go to the moon." And it was Werner von Braun yeah. who as the as the story goes was flying little pieces of like he he had a dream since he was little to go to the moon that he was right. flying furniture around his house as a child. Yeah. Yeah, Werner von Werner von, we're, I, we should just do a whole episode on that guy yeah, at some point. Yeah. So some people said that it had anti-gravitational effects. Some people said it was a time machine. And one of the things that was said is that it had this zone of about 490 to 606 6060 feet. And within that zone, crystals would form within animal tissue, plant matter, plant matter decomposed into a gray substance and blood gelled and separated from from the body. So maybe something that could cause something like cattle mutilation (laughs) and the unexplainable gelling and release of blood. I don't know. I'm just saying like this is the thing that was said about it, right? Is that whatever it was doing, whatever source it was using, it was harmful to everything around it. Um. 
what they say is that it was powered by a liquid fuel known as serum 525. And they said it was red in color, gooey and dense. And some people claim that this was red mercury. Are you familiar with red mercury? No. Apparently it doesn't exist, but it's a thing that people say about D Glock and other huh. ancient tech stuff is that there's this thing called red mercury. And I'm wondering, is this the secret red stuff? Is this the Vril? Is this what they're talking about? Is, is the serum five two five is red mercury Vril? Is this the thing that they were searching for? This, this substance that can do magical things. Okay. Are we sure this isn't blood in some way? No, I'm not sure. I'm just saying like they're calling it red mercury. They're calling it this magical red substance that can do unexplainable things. And supposedly they back engineered this thing from the Vril Society's esoteric knowledge they got from Pleiadian telepathy. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, blood. right? I'm yeah. Just, I'm just telling you it's 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 blood from the sacrificed people. It probably is, isn't it? Is that the yeah. secret of Vril? That Vril is is blood from sacrifice? Like a certain type of sacrifice? Or is it red mercury? I don't know. Um, I want to get back to the concept of mercury in a minute. But I want to, like, this is all, as far as we know, fiction. So I want to look into what evidence there is of this. So there was many Nazis that were tried for war crimes after the war. And one was a man named Jacob Sporenberg. And he was one of the highest ranks. He was tried for the murder of 60 German engineers. And in his court affidavit, he talked about Die Glocke which is interesting. Um, many of the scientists were murdered working on it to keep it secret. It was in this guy's Nuremberg trial, right? So this is a guy who was tried for murdering 60 German engineers. And then in his trial, he killed him because of the, the Nazi bell. So there is at least some recorded proof Honestly. that not only was this built, but the scientists who knew about it were murdered. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's okay. also... Oh, go ahead. Just just a just a quick break to talk about young adult novels that seem to have like all all the answers in them right now. Yeah, there there's a young adult series that I loved because it was super well written and lyrical and all that. And the conclusion in this series, I'm not going to say what it is because that would be spoilers. Is that the secret to alchemy is mixing the blood of humans and the blood of non-humans together? So like Nephilim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, red yeah. mercury is, is blood confirmed. Alex Kuhn wants to know, what is the daddy dom romance? It's so, called, here, <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a link, PJ. <laughs> yeah. On an earlier episode, we were talking about how essentially the the young, young female audience, uh, literature audience is being pushed to like all these books that are like, hey, you should sleep with aliens and demons and Mothman and Nephilim and... Abby took me to the bookstore near her house and that's every book on like, there's this major section of like women sleeping with gargoyles and vampires and literally Nephilim and literally fallen angels and demons and aliens. Yeah. So it's the, they're pushing Nephilim stuff on, on young women. Is, I sent yeah. it to you on, on Twitter. I also, because I keep, I love books. I was literature major in, in college. I love stories and I love kind of the impact that, mythology and story has on culture and on history so when i see certain themes popping up in what is in the literature of a culture that's a meaningful thing so i keep i keep track of what's at the bookstore is what i'm saying yeah yeah and this is the funniest book that we've seen at the bookstore this gargoyle romance yeah book 
Bookstore Thor says Mysterious Middle East on YouTube did a really interesting video on Red Mercury last year. I feel like oh. we're going to have to do like a deeper dive on it because yeah. we told you guys last week that we're starting season three off with Tartaria stuff. And Tartaria mm. stuff is involved heavily in the idea that Mercury is this secret like magical property that they can mm. do all kinds of stuff with. So it sounds a lot but like for, but I want to get back to the point in a minute. So we have this Jacob Spornberger saying he murdered these German scientists to keep the, de- the, the death bell, the Nazi bell, the Glocke. There's also these paintings of an artist, Charles A.A. Delachoux, and he painted these during the 19th century before the bell was supposed to be invented, and he painted really highly detailed pictures of what the craft was going to look like and a bunch of other craft that also was invented supposedly by the Nazis. It's really interesting. So uh, if you guys are watching, here's... uh, Oh, shoot. That's the wrong one. I don't have it. I have it up here. Let me share this. So here's his picture of... Huh. Oh my gosh. Can I make that bigger? There we go. Uh, yeah. Evil There's egg. his picture of this evil bell and it's forbidden a, it's a flying egg. device. Yeah. It's this forbidden egg as you said. And uh, if you look, uh, if you just type in Charles A. A. Delachoux, D E L L S C H A U, you'll find all these really colorful drawings of these weird flying devices. Mm-hmm. And some of them like They're very this detailed. one looks kind of like, yeah, they're very detailed. They, it looks kind of like the the stuff that Victor Schauberger was working on, and it looks yeah. kind of like it looks more like Hannah B. One, to be honest. Yeah. So very interesting stuff. Um, just a little side note there. Uh, let's see what else did I have for this guy? Um, he was also a member of the German Sonora Aero Club Collective, a group that constructed exploratory exploratory aircraft designs. So. He might have just been doing that, but he also painted hundreds of crafts that looked like this one, which just doesn't seem like a plausible aircraft in any way at all, unless you have some kind of red mercury vril stuff to like power it. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So let's see. I'm going to skip some of this stuff. There was a guy in. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, There's this guy, Igor, the, the guy we we're talking about at the beginning, who discovered Evidence of the Bell in 1997. He's the guy who wrote the book in 2000. While looking over classified transcripts from the Sporenberg Polish war crimes. Again, that guy that said he killed all the, the people to keep this secret. And he received these documents from an unnamed person working within Poland's intel community. And he, of course, could not make copies. So that always kind of sucks. You know, it's like unnamed. I don't have copies. Trust me, bro. Which I hate. Yeah. The Sporenberger thing does make it more convincing. Yeah. The Igor, I, I hate that. But he says the Bell's test rig uh, runs are found in a concrete structure, and he names that one that they did actually end up finding outside of Poland. So uh, there's another guy named Henry Stevens who wrote a book in 2007 called Hitler's Suppressed and Still Secret Weapons, Science, and Technology. And he was the one who suggested the fuel for the Bell was red mercury. And he talks about a scientist named Otto Cerny who told a teenager named Greg, Greg Rowe, he, this guy told this guy who told, yeah, um, <laughs> that the uh, tech that had a concave mirror top was thought to be the bell. And he told the kid that he could generate images that it had a, sorry. He told the kid that had a concave mirror on top, that if you're in it, it could generate images of the past. So this is kind of where you get this idea that maybe it's not just a flying machine. Maybe it's a time machine, or maybe it's taking people to other dimensions or portals it's got a lot of history yeah a lot of weird stuff the document on the pladians that said not only are they from another dimension but they're from another thank you i was hoping you were gonna get that (laughs) yeah they're from another dimension another time 
and another planet. Okay. And they happen to build a machine that supposedly can move dimensions, time, and space. I want to state for the record that PJ was working on the research for the Nazi UFOs before I even started the Palladians research. And he had no idea what I was going to say about the Palladians until last week. Yeah. And it's funny how well these things line up. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't honestly, I didn't even, I didn't know anything about the Palladians really before last week, like not much. So like when you went into it, all I knew is they were like tall blonde haired aliens, right? So I was doing this research before thinking, oh, they're not going to be related, but I want to cover this. And then it just happens to be like perfect timing. So um, is the red mercury this Vril is is the question I want to ask. And is there proof that it does what it's supposed to do? And obviously we're going to go more into mercury stuff. We get to Tartaria because it's a huge claim of that. But I found this interesting thing and it might be all BS. I'm just saying that up front. But there's this guy named Shivkar Bapuji Talapadaya. Shivkar Bapuji Talpati. That's the best I'm going to get. And he's claimed to have he claimed to have constructed and flown an unmanned heavier than air aircraft in 1895 before the Wright brothers. So Talpati. Talpati. I don't know how to say his name. Talpati. We're a grown up. Talpati. It's a. I'm going to butcher your name uh, if if you're not like an, if it's not a John or a Dave, I'm going to butcher your name uh, is reputed to have constructed an unmanned heavier than aircraft thing that he named the Martu Saka. This is in India. So just yeah. And he said he flew it above Bombay's Chow Patty Beach in 1895 and that the aircraft were described as a as cylindrical made of bamboo and it claimed to use mercury as a fuel. So the idea of using mercury as a fuel in a unmanned round aircraft actually goes back to before the Nazis, which I found really interesting. And if Can we I really, yeah, go ahead. Note about mercury. So it's, I grew up with those glass thermometers with mercury in them where it was like, don't bite down too hard on this glass thing or you'll die. <laughs> like, really scary because it's so poisonous. It's super poisonous. Yeah, but or like don't drop it because even the fumes would be harmful to you. It does Um, have some weird properties, which I understand is why it makes into a lot of the ancient tech stuff. Like if you freeze it to like some impossible temperature to freeze it to, it becomes this like a superconductor like that. They said can like generate like that. There's a real I don't know the science behind it, but there's this real thing that it will do when it's frozen to like negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit that makes it kind of insane. But the idea of keeping it at negative 400 Fahrenheit in a flying aircraft is kind of impossible, right? It's a little, it's a little wild. I think that like being around it drove people crazy. The fumes that come off mercury, um, drive people crazy. And so there's, yeah, there's a lot of secrecy. There's a lot of like weird imagination around it, but it's also named after Hermes, like mercury. Could could the fact that liquid mercury has some esoteric properties and it drives people crazy have anything to do with the fact that they keep finding underneath pyramids? Um, Did you know this? Liquid mercury found underneath Mexican pyramid could lead to King's tomb. There are so much of the specifically Aztec pyramids and Mexico pyramids that have these pools of liquid mercury. Well, mercury's liquid at room temperature. Mercury yeah. underneath them. How big? I don't know. I didn't read the whole thing, but yeah, it's, there's a lot of articles on it. How big are these pools? 
We'll read. We'll we'll read large through it. Quantities. In the, I, I yeah, large, large quantities. I yeah, large quantities. Yeah. So. Oh. Yeah. So they know something we don't know about Mercury. I mean, there's a reason the Tartarian conspiracy theory kind of revolves around Mercury being super important, but it's also has an air of evil about it. Yeah. Doesn't it? I think it does. It's weird. I don't know, man. Um, Real Truth Cax says organic mercury crosses the blood brain barrier and messes up your brain. Yeah, the stuff's super dangerous. And what's weird about some of the Tartaria simps, and I say that because some people just like take it way too far, is uh, they'll say things like, no, mercury's the greatest thing ever and you should put it in everything. You should put it on your cereal. And I'm like, no, that's like super dangerous. No. No, one guy literally claimed that like eating mercury would make you like a superhuman in one of the Tartaria podcasts I was listening to. And I was like, no, it'll make you super dead though. <laughs> like super like, dead. Then do it. Yeah. <laughs> do it, dude. Like if you think it's so great. Yeah, it was weird. He's like, no, he's like, no, no, like like trace amounts of it in your food would make you like really healthy. I'm like, I doubt that. Trace amounts of I am not trying it, is my point. <laughs> um Alex Kun said, didn't Marie Curie get really ill from Mercury? No, my understanding is she got really ill from radiation. I could be wrong. She I don't was, know. She was investigating radioactive things like um i think she, uranium things like that she was discovering answered Sater also says they found uh the chinese emperor's tomb had rivers of mercury under it that's what i'm saying is like oh i didn't gosh. have time to dig into all the mercury stuff but just a quick google search i was finding all of these weird sites have mercury under them so you brought up stonehenge and i was just thinking to myself i'm like is it possible that all of these sites might have something in common and if they're looking they're going to find Mercury. I don't know. I feel, I feel like it's something to look into. Mercury is a byproduct of red mercury. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? I, I, so I, I googled what is it a symbol for? It's 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 liquid. Well, okay. It's described as liquid seal, silver because it's cool, dense, shiny, and slippery. It's like it's, it's why it's named after mercury. It's, it's like a slippery evil tricky substance. You know? <laughs> Jack says my frosted flakes with mercury uh, instead of milk is not a lifestyle y'all should be making fun of. All right, Jack. You do you, Jax. You do <laughs> yeah. you, buddy. If it's um, working for you, then great. So let's let's go back to this guy Hans Kamler, who's who's been reported in these books to be the engineer of the Die Glocke. Die Glocke. The Nazi Wunderwaffe. So Kamler had been responsible for the expansion of underground production facilities for things like jet engines, jet airplanes, motors, and the A4 rocket program since August of 1943. So this is the guy, if you're doing a secret underground facility for Nazi research, this is the guy, right? And some historians, such as Reiner Karlsch, speculate that Hans Kammler did not commit suicide in 1945, as has been claimed, because there's never been a body found. So he's not alone in thinking this like this guy, the, the official stories he committed suicide because someone close to him said he did. Yeah. Right. Because because that that's a good source. Right. In this context. I'm just going to say this. It's as plausible that Hitler committed suicide. I know that people like have read their history books. I think that's a thing. Don't realize that our own president didn't think Hitler killed himself. The CIA spent years trying to figure out where Hitler went and they just kind of like gave up on it because it was a female skull. We never had a body like it wasn't Hitler didn't kill himself in that bunker is my point. Like 
if if is he did, the, we'd have evidence of it. And there is, is the none. OG Epstein didn't kill himself. He is though, right? Um, so I'm I think that there might have been a plan in the higher echelons of the Nazi party to fake, fake your, your death, death and run off to Argentina or something. Hmm. But that's a different episode. So Friendship Island, everybody. Friendship <laughs> Island. That's that's a future episode. So uh, some people think he was brought back to the United States by intelligence services to make him transfer his knowledge about the secret weapons project of Nazi Germany to the U.S. authorities. But others believe that he stole the Glocka and either disappeared to another country or perhaps another time. And this is where it gets interesting. Oh, boy. December 9th, 1965. Okay. There's this fireball that's been reported by citizens across six United uh, six U.S. states and Canada. It was over Detroit. It was over Windsor, it was over Ontario. Of course it was over Detroit. Of course it was. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> uh, and then there's these reports of hot metal debris over Michigan, Northern Ohio. There's grass fires. There's sonic booms in Pittsburgh. And they're all attributing it to this one fireball that everybody's seeing across Canada and six states. Okay. So that's not a small meteor. It's not a small fireball. No, that's a big yeah. deal. And uh, some people in the village of Kecksburg, about 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, reported wisps of blue smoke, vibrations, and a loud thump. And they said that something from the sky had crashed into their woods. So an early story in the Green Greensburg Tribune Review stated this, quote, the area where the object landed was immediately sealed off on order of the U.S. military of U.S. of the U.S. Army and state police officials in anticipation of a close inspection of whatever uh, may have fallen. State police officials there ordered the area roped off to await the expected arrival of both U.S. Army engineers and possibly civilian scientists. When state troopers and the Air Force personnel searched the woods, they reported finding absolutely nothing at all. Nothing. Right. This is the. I just want to remind you. This is the official report from our government in 1965 <laughs> that they found nothing. And then a fireball was seen over six states, and they found and, nothing. Yeah, and they found nothing. That's the official story in 1965. Okay. <laughs> Astronomers said that it was likely to have been a meteor bolide burning up the atmosphere and descending at a steep angle. In 2005, for some reason, NASA releases a report. <laughs> That experts have examined the fragments that they didn't find. I'm sorry. <laughs> from the area that didn't have a crash. What? what and fragments? determined the the fragments that they that they didn't find <laughs> from an area that didn't have a crash, Got and it. that it was a Soviet satellite was the official story in 2005. Okay, so so they're trying to tell us that a Soviet satellite fell out of the sky <clears throat> in the middle of the Cold War. And this wasn't front page news everywhere trying to embarrass the Russians that their tech failed. Uh, that's exactly what they're trying to get you to believe. And it gets worse. It gets worse. There were no records because they were lost sometime in the mid 1980s. The official story from NASA. The records were lost sometime in the 1980s. So NASA agreed to search for those records after being ordered by a court. So agreed to. They were ordered by a court to find these records, right? Because of a FOIA request. So during this hearing where they were, uh, you know, forced to reveal these documents, Steve McConnell, NASA's public liaison officer, testified that two boxes of papers from the time of the Kecksburg incident were just missing. They were just gone. So no crash, but we also there was and we don't have the documents because two boxes are missing. This is the official story. 
Uh, so let's look what the eyewitnesses reported. Local residents at the time who said they uh, who said they saw it said they found an object in the woods shaped like an acorn, and it was about as large as a Volkswagen Beetle. And the writing on it resembled Egyptian hieroglyphs. And that was and that uh, they were and the object was removed after a secret military operation. Was this Deglaka is the question. And here is the picture of the, the thing they put up in their town resembling what the thing they found looked like an upside down acorn. It looks like an acorn with Egyptian hieroglyphs. It looks like it looks like Deglaka. But just like acorn colored right like <laughs> as if it had been burning through the night sky and it was glowing <laughs> the same color that the the nazi foo or that the foo fighters supposedly were glowing and the sh- size and shape of the foo fighters jack says pj literally reading the script to chicken little right now am i really i've never seen chicken little is that the script how Dude, dare you chicken little how dare chicken you? little is revelation of the method <laughs> Chicken Little is deep into the occult. I can't believe you haven't seen a movie about Chicken Little getting hit by a piece of the sky, but really, it's a piece of an alien spaceship. I have no, I did not know any of this. How have you? How? <coughs> I, I know that it's a movie, <clears throat> but I, I've never seen it. I have never seen movies that I've seen Chicken Little many times. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I'm not going to watch those those crappy movies like Citizen Kane. I'm going to watch Chicken Little. Chicken Little like <clears throat> 10 times. Chicken Little is Abby's Godfather part My, one. You're, you say that like it's a joke, but <laughs> Master of Disguise was my godfather. <laughs> no, no, I will back you up on that. I love Master of Disguise. It's got like a one on Rotten Tomatoes, and they're dead wrong. The movie's hilarious. It was so good. The movie's great. <laughs> I got, I got to be fair though. I watched it as an adult, and it did not hold up. Oh, I, I still thought it was funny. It's not as good though. I did, I watched it like two years ago, but I was drinking enough that I think it was still okay, pretty I good. Needed to drink. <laughs> so, um, last thing I want to bring up is this this link of hieroglyphs, right? Because one of the things that's been reported in not just the Kecksburg, Pennsylvania crash is this idea that all of these things, all of these different quote-unquote Roswell-type incidents have hieroglyphs on them. Roswell and Rendlesham alien mystery linked, uh, according to express.co.uk. Basically, there's reports that both Roswell crash and... The British version of the Roswell, because I just call it British Roswell, the Rendlesham alien mystery, had hieroglyphs on it. Like these have been reported. I think it was even in Annie Jacobson's book that they had these weird symbols that people couldn't, yeah. you know, tra- they couldn't understand what they were. There's some type of hieroglyph, right? Um, I'm sure if you look deeply enough into the uh, 1936 crash, it had some kind of weird writing on it as well. Annie so- Jacobson's books about conspiracy theories like Area 51 and paperclip and stuff are so well researched that they're boring as fuck. <laughs> like they're, they're they so are good. Yeah. Like I, I can't stress she's not somebody who sensationalizes to try to make money off of it. Mm-hmm. They are meticulous to the point of dry. Like, yeah, I don't know how you can make a book about UFOs boring, but she manages it. 
I had to stop listening to Area 51 by Annie Jacobson at work because I was falling asleep. But it's good. <laughs> it's good, though, because you're right. It, she is because so fact, actual factual yeah. the whole way through all of her books. She's my favorite on, on this subject, for sure. She's meticulous. Yeah. 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 It's super, super good stuff. Um, so my last question is, what if what if it's not Nazi tech? What if it's not Glocka or some circular UFO? We've already established essentially that like what the Foo Fighters were were not disc UFOs. They had to have been something else just based on the shape and based on what they did and the colors and things like that. What if the Foo Fighters have always been with us? Ah! They've always been with us saying, ah! what if these things are not like the other? One of these things is not like the other ones. Sorry, those Foo Fighters lyrics. I didn't know if you got that. No. They were saying, I don't want to be your monkey wrench. There goes my hero. Do you know any <laughs> songs? <laughs> He's on maybe, maybe if no? you quote a few more lines, I'll get it. Oh, anyway. One of the Foo Fighters have always been with us. Let's go back to Rome. So according, according to Plutarch of, my gosh, can I get a name that's easy to read? Plutarch is Yeah, but I was trying to say of the thing I can't read. Plutarch oh. of Carinaea in 74 BC, before the battle between the armies of Lucullus and Mithridates VI in Asia, a large object in the sky between the armies appeared in flames in the shape of a wine vessel and in molten silver color. I'm sorry. <laughs> this, this, is, this is really in his writings. Plutarch wrote Plutarch. this. Yes. In 74 BC. There was another one from 270 something BC that said there was like armies or ships in the sky, but I didn't think it was like as detailed. But this one says shaped like a wine vessel, molten silver, right? Nuremberg also, you know, interesting the placement. Uh-huh, There's a book uh-huh. called Lieber Conc- It's it's the Nuremberg Chronicle in German. It describes a strange fiery spe- uh, sphere seen in 1034 soaring through the sky in a straight course from the south to the east and then veering towards the setting sun. This is the first illustration of a UFO in history in 1034, right? Then we have the Bermuda Triangle in 1942 where Christopher Columbus was traveling through the Bermuda Triangle. This is real. This is in his journal. And he said he saw stars that appeared to move around in the sky and a light that looked like a candle flame coming up out of the water and shooting up towards the sky. I read an article today, I shit you not, saying, oh, we finally figured out what what, uh, Christopher Columbus was talking about. There's glow worms somewhere on the bottom of the ocean, the Bermuda Triangle, and that would describe a ball of flame shooting up towards the sky. These debunkers are ridiculous. They're so dumb. No one... And then we we get to, you know, we have the Foo Fighters. And then we get to the U.S. Nimitz in October, uh, November 14th, 2004, where Navy pilots described a tic-tac-looking object moving at incredible speeds and doing impossible maneuvers. All of these things are being described by how they see them at the time. The these either tic-tac or round-shaped glowing yeah. metal things that are moving in impossible speeds and impossible directions defying laws of physics, showing up over battlefields, showing up over important historical events for all of history. The tic-tac is interesting to me too. When, when we talk about the ones that are they're spotted on Navy vessels or commercial pilots and stuff, this is, it's, it's <laughs> two, two things that are seeing them. 
Did what? I say, I'm sorry. Did I say 1944 Columbus? Oh, Lord. Fort, 1492. 14. I put it in my notes as 1942 and I meant 1492. He's a little dyslexic with the, with the numbers. No, I wrote the numbers down wrong. I read them right. It's not so dyslexia. You, so you're dyslexic. <laughs> you wrote them backwards. So you know, anyway, um, <clears throat> where was I? Oh, they're seeing it on radar and with their eyeballs at the same time. So it's not just somebody who's looking out and seeing something and hallucinating something and then looking at the radar and it's not there. And it's not looking at something on your radar that you can't see with your eyeball. It's both corroborating each other. Multiple people on the ship all seeing the same thing on both. Right. And people will often deny stories that start with a radar occurrence. And we, uh, we don't have time to get into all these stories, but there's a, I can't remember when it was, it was cold war. And there was this radar picking up these these objects, and they sent two fighter pilots after it, and they said they saw a UFO. And people go, well, oh, the, they just focus on the radar thing. Oh, it's a radar blip. I'm like, hold on. That's half the story. Yeah. The other half is they saw it. Yeah, and sent pilots after it. Yeah, and the pilots saw it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just weird. So I just, I just think that I don't th- – my, my whole point in this is like I do find the stuff interesting about the Vril Society. I think it shows the deep occultic evil religion of the Nazis. I think they probably were developing disc UFOs, and that does probably explain some of the things we've seen. Yeah. But this, this idea of these oblong, silvery, fiery objects that are moving – because that's the thing that's different about flying saucers. They don't move the way that these things do. There's different mm-hmm. types of reports, and they need to be – looked at differently as if they're not all exactly the the same thing. But I think it's just interesting to see people in 1944 saying these, they didn't have Tic Tacs. Tic Tacs weren't invented until the sixties. So they're calling them like these round or oblong shaped things. By the way, if you look up a, I forgot to pull up a picture. If you look up a Roman wine vessel from the time, it's long and a Tic Tac shaped with handles. Interesting. So when Plutarch says it was wine vessel shaped, it would have looked like a a tic-tac with handles. It's almost like this is where I get so frustrated with Christians because Christians believe that there is there are whole races of beings, multiple races that Christians don't believe that there's just one type of angel. Like it's not just all that look the same There's multiple different types of angelic beings and some of them are fallen and some of them are not but like christians believe that there's all of these races of beings that are that are not human and then they're like aliens don't exist i know i know it's crazy you just told me you believe in entire races of beings that you know almost nothing about but you don't think aliens exist well, and then they must, I, I wonder what they think of Ezekiel when he explains these fiery chariots in the sky or these, you know, these ladder, Jacob's ladder or things like that that sound like a tractor beam, like all these ideas that are like, hey, there has always been these weird fiery things in the sky. Yeah, but it, there's just a complete disconnect. And I, yeah. ultimately, I'm like, do you really believe what you say you believe? Because right. if you really believe what you say what you believe... There is room in there for all of this, but you're pretending you're using that to dismiss this. You're like, I don't believe in aliens. I think it's just demons. I don't believe in aliens because you called it the wrong word. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that that's, that's a big part of the error yeah. is that 
we think I was taught that demons and fallen angels are the same thing. And demons we know are strictly spiritual and they try to possess and inhabit. Right. But fallen angels are not the same thing. No, if they were, if they were strictly only spiritual, Genesis six doesn't make sense. A lot of the old Testament doesn't make sense. Uh, the, the angel that picked, kicked Peter in the ribs or ate food or walked into Sodom and Gomorrah. Like yeah. none of those things make sense, right? So right. we're just looking at these things in this overly simplified, overly etheric way that's just not biblical in nature. It, it's not know. biblical. It's just like our yeah. understanding of it after Hollywood and other people kind of distorting it, right? It's like it's like at some point somebody told us, if, if there are beings driving around in spaceships, that disproves your faith. And then we just believed them. As, yeah. as if the Bible somehow, like, it doesn't tell us very much about these other beings because it's not our story. It's so, so it, who it's cares so, if they're driving around in spaceships? It's so funny to me because it's like the Bible will describe angels using all kinds of technology. But then as soon as, as soon as we see something using technology in the sky, it's like, oh, that disproves your faith. Or that proves that there couldn't possibly be fallen angels because fallen angels wouldn't need a spaceship. Says who? That, like, again, read Ezekiel. Yeah. They're yeah. using something to move around in the sky that's described as a fiery wheel. Yeah, <clears> I don't know <throat> who needs to hear this, but the Bible f- does not describe fallen angels or angels as like flying around with wings, except like small distances in the throne room. And that's not fallen angels. It's like regular angels flying around with. Well, there's wings. different types of angels. It's the cherubim that are described as having six yeah. sets of, or six wings. Right. So, but that doesn't say, or is it the seraphim? I can't traveling long distances. With those wings. It do, it never says these beings exclusively get about by their wings. All right. Know. Well, anyway, we are going to uh, go and read all of your guys's uh, rumble rants and check out all the wonderful things you guys, the, the memes and stuff you guys have sent us on Odyssey. So if you're listening to this, please come over, follow us on rumble, uh, come over and join our locals community. We're going to have more stuff coming out. We're doing another unhinged episode tomorrow night. We're going to be talking about, uh, Tiffany Gomez and uh, Gomez, Gomez. You Gomez. call her Gomez. Gomez sounds like dumbass. That's just rude. And uh, and the uh, alien UFO, uh, hearing. UFO hearings. Yeah, yeah. I so. finally listened to the UFO hearing in full today. So we're gonna talk about that and probably um, I we had a commenter talking about that incident in Peru with alien mm-hmm. aliens potentially. Probably, Is that the one I sent you? Yeah, cover yeah, that yeah. as well. So. There has been a lot of interesting alien news lately, including uh, Russian declassified documents. So eventually we're going to get into all that stuff. But thank you guys for being here. If you're watching live, stick around. Uh, see if you can get me to read Dar- Gargoyle Daddy Dom romance, romancing his stone. $32 left $32 to read left. about gargoyle sex. All right. Have a great one, every everybody. God bless. God bless.